This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 27, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. What would a proper audit of the Federal Reserve look like? And what should we expect from a Fed during the Trump administration? Jim Grant publishes Grant's Interest Rate Observer. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. Oh, you know what? The the best line in the election, there are two great lines in the election. One is, uh, only he could lose to her, and only she could lose to him. That was from a Wall Street Journal editorial in the spring, and that's uh, how true that was. The second great line was one uttered by David Galerter, who was a Yale computer science professor, a polymath of uh, great genius. I don't throw that word around. He's He's a very, very accomplished man in many fields. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal propounding the view that Donald Trump is the better alternative. And he said, quote, Donald Trump is the gin, empty gin bottle of the people's wrath. And, yeah, close quote. And to me, that line is so clarifying. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny and it's winning, but it also it speaks to the nature of, uh, of the election, the nature of the mood of the country. And um, it speaks as well to... Uh, I think, to the true legacy of our recent monetary methods. Um, you know, the economy can't seem to swing its legs out of bed in the morning. Uh, 2% as measured, uh, people feel that as if they haven't got much of a future. And I'm not sure all this can be laid at the doorstep of the Fed. In fact, I'm quite sure all of it cannot be. Uh, and people have been throwing brickbats at central banks for as long as central banks have existed. But... Um, when you have a once-in-5,000-year occurrence, you know something is new. And I refer to interest rates pitched to levels of less than zero. That has not happened in the recorded history of interest rates, which is a 5,000-year narrative. That's new. And when something is really, really new under the sun of finance, which is a rarity, one is, uh, is beckoned to stop and take notice. All right. So what brought us here? Bad ideas brought us here. In particular, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the overarching bad idea is, is, is that of statism. And the subheading uh, must be something to do with, uh, uh, with the nature of money, it being a public good, uh, uh, something to do with the uh, responsibility of the government for uh, forestalling business cycle downturns and the bad idea that uh, somehow economists in their expert knowledge can see into the future and improve it before it comes to pass. All those bad ideas uh, conspired to bring us to where we are. It is a, uh, you know, there's, there's a wonderful physicist named uh, Richard Feynman of yesteryear. He was a Nobel Prize winner and uh, a little bit like David Galertner, a polymath. Uh, Feynman uh, was very funny, very witty, and very knowing about the human condition quite outside of the realm of physics. And he gave a commencement talk to the uh, Caltech class in 1974. He said, you know, I used to think that we lived in an age of science. And then I <clears throat> came out to California, and I see all these people believing in ESP and astrology. And I think we live in the age of pseudoscience. And he said, uh, I especially thought, think that, having reflected on the the pedagogy, uh, the uh, the higher uh, schools of pedagogy, they te- 
teach teachers new methods of educational theory. And uh, these are very finely developed bodies of knowledge, except I can't help but notice that the test scores in the schools are getting lower, not higher. So I call this pseudoscience. I call it cargo cult science, he said, because uh, Am I boring you with this? No. So um, the, uh, in the Second World War, there was an island uh, heretofore unexplored on which the Army Air Forces made a base. They landed planes. The planes disgorged cargo that was wondrous to the native peoples who had never before seen a plane or anything to do with the 20th century. And uh, the, at length, the war was won. The Army left. Planes didn't come anymore. Uh, the people on the island wished the planes would return. So to make them return, they made runways. They lit the runways with torches. They set up a control tower. They gave the controller bamboo headphones, and they waited. Planes didn't come. So Feynman told the Caltech graduates that uh, that was the point. They they recreated the methods of science, the, the evident uh, rigmarole of science, but without the substantive thing. And isn't that monetary economics? The economic planes don't land. The theory was that the Fed was going to raise up asset prices, lift up stock prices, lift up real estate values, and people feeling richer because of their portfolios would spend. That spending would ignite other activity, and before long, we would be back in the clover. Well, those planes haven't landed. and But what hasn't happened is nobody named Richard Feynman or... Uh, first approximation to that in the year 2016. Nobody has come out and said, this is a pseudoscientific undertaking. These 700 PhDs in the staff of the Fed, these aspirational physicists, they ought to go work for the Navy Department, they ought to go work for NASA, any place except this institution of money. But uh, nobody's listening. <laughs> so Ron Paul, in his two campaigns for president uh, most recently made a, made a big uh, deal out of auditing the Fed. What would that look like to your satisfaction? I would think that uh, a meaningful audit of the Fed would, would be one in which the Fed explains itself. And it must explain itself to the layman in plain, intelligible English. No more of these uh, footnotes garlanded, garlanded with algebra and differential calculus. What we want is not the econometricians talking to other econometricians. We want the econometricians being forced to explain themselves in the language of the taxpayer. And they would have to tell us why the Fed exists. They would have to tell us why administered prices, as in the stock market and the bond market, why administered prices are superior to prices that are discovered in the free play of market forces. They would have to tell us why, notwithstanding the elaborate, dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models that were deployed in the early 2000s, that the economists at the Fed missed the biggest professional event of their lives in 2008. How'd that happen? And I guess these questions appear from time to time in Humphrey Hawkins' testimony and other appearances on the Hill by the Fed uh, uh, C-suite. But I somehow think that the answers get lost. And I think, the th I think, I think an audit to be, I mean, the, the, the GAO goes in and counts up pencils and, I guess, Federal Reserve notes. Auditing and, the books, not the process. Yeah, um, um, and the books ought to be audited. I mean, this is a, it's a $4.5 trillion operation. It's no small potatoes. Yes, audit the books. Count the gold in the 
elsewhere, and that's outside the Fed now. But count the gold, are the books. I think more important is to is to let us all rethink this outfit. This outfit is insulated uh, from operational competition by the law. It is insulated by intellectual competition from the tenure rules prevailing at university economics faculties. It's undisruptible. Well, let an audit begin to disrupt it. All right, so we talked about the, the prohibitions on competition. Uh, what might operational competition look like uh, in a way that is, let's say, minimally disruptive in the short run. Well, let's let's uh, lift taxes on gold such that you don't pay a collectibles tax for switching what is stamped in the, in the, in the case of U.S. gold coins stamped as money. You don't pay a tax as if it were not money. Let's 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 not tax money. Let's or let's tax Federal Reserve notes. Let's 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 equilibrate. Uh, legacy money and uh, and um, and fake oh and uh, uh, contemporary money. Let us let us do that through the tax system, and that's not going to work any miracles. But well, what it will allow is people to experiment. This entrepreneurs will start uh, as they've already begun, but they're they're working against very difficult uh, tax conditions. Let entrepreneurs uh, start alternative uh, currency regimes. Now, I think that uh, finally there will be one currency regime because. Money is a unit of measurement. We don't have uh, different uh, units of measurement for industrial specifications. The world would be a chaos if we did. We need a homogeneous and universally accepted set of monetary values, but maybe we should introduce a competition to find which one the people want more. The people have one only by law. Let's let a little fresh wind through. Do you have any thoughts on on what those what those competitive currencies might be or what they might look like? Yes, the uh, yes, I do. the uh, uh, The symbol in the periodic table of the elements is AU. <laughs> I'm a gold guy, uh, silver too sometimes. But uh, I I I believe that um, uh, the gold standard, as it evolved uh, for the better part of a hundred years, uh, more than that certainly in more primitive forms, but as it Evolved in connection with the institution of fractional reserve banking. That that particular mix of money and banking was, you know, the flywheel of the Industrial Revolution. It had as a most imperfect system as all human contrivances are. But it strikes me as far superior to anything that has been tried since. And um, don't take my word for it. Read a book by a guy named Arthur Bloomfield, who worked for the New York Fed, who wrote, I think, in 1958, a monograph about the classical gold standard, 1880 to 1914, and in spite of himself, concluded there was a, a pretty fine system, a very fine system. So, in, in relation to that, you said you're a gold guy, and that the Federal Reserve should be compelled uh, to explain itself to people who are not econometricians. Should one of the things that they have to explain be persistent inflation for 100 plus years? Sure. They have to, they have to answer well, but, the whole... But, but the, not, not just that, but the moral preferability of persistent well, they inflation. Have, they, they have to explain why a 2% per annum upcreep in the price level is on its face desirable. And this is and one of the maddening things about the mandarins of the Fed is they, is they come up with these things and they regard them as self-evident. And if you don't speak their language in rebuttal, they won't even listen to your rebuttal. You have to, It takes a model to beat a model, say, you know, quoth Ben S. Bernanke, PhD. Well, nuts. There is a common sense 
objection to losing 2% a year on the money you earn, right? It's, 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 it's like somebody was taking away from you. In fact, there was a most eloquent uh, president of the Atlanta Fed named, I think, Malcolm Bryan, who in the 1960s uh, uh, wrote the most uh, emotionally laden screeds against even the intimation of inflation, which these began to see in the early 1960s. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we've gone from that to the institutionalization of inflation um, without really any public debate. I mean, I, I, think, I think people are of at least two minds on this inflation question. So many millions of Americans haven't had a raise in years or decades. So many feel the tug of this latent deflationary force having to do with, I think, the cause of which is, is the over-encumbrance of everything in the economy. It's debt. Um, and it is global competition. And it is a lack of dynamism that comes from, among other things, from a very, very slow rate of, uh, of population growth. I think the birth control pill owes is, is some distant cause, remote cause, of what is happening now in the way of, of, of economic growth or its, or its lack. You know, people are getting married later, forming families later. People have two kids rather than three or four. Pretty soon the birth rate is 0 0.8. And people say, well, what's, why, why, why is productivity growth so, why is growth so low? Why, well, um, it's, a, it's a kind of a tired society that doesn't reproduce itself. It's especially tired in Japan. It's especially tired in Italy. But in America, it's looking a little fatigued, too. So everything cannot be laid at the doorstep of our monetary manipulators. But uh, well, a lot, the, a lot the, ought to be. To the extent that the birth control pill was a piece of technology that gave uh, sure. women more control over their, over their lives, that's something that wasn't built into models. It was not. It was not. And, and people, prefer, people prefer this. I mean, I, a lot of people prefer fiat money, and they have their reasons, and those reasons are wholly defensible. And, uh, and many women have enjoyed the freedom that comes from their choice not to have to... Uh, uh, be the uh, the rock and foundation of a family of 12. That is, in many people's view, uh, an element of progress in the world. But we have to face the fact that when birth, well, the, last, the previous time the Cubs won the World Series was the year 1908. And I happen to know this because, first of all, I was, I was alive then and a fan. But um, the uh, population was growing at 1.8% a year. And in that year of 1908, and the and something like a million plus immigrants, gross, not net, because some left, came into the country, which is the equivalent of like three or four million today. It's a huge influx of people. So, so the country was bursting in its seams. This technology was exploding, you know, um, uh, most constructively. Uh, the internal combustion engine was to the fore. My goodness, you could walk into a house, turn the lights on, inside plumbing. What next? So all these things were happening at once, along with a huge burst of demographic growth. And, uh, and, and, and the gold standard, uh, you know, uh, the country was, uh, uh, in relative terms, uh, impoverished compared to today. Top Cubs players were making 3000 bucks a year. Uh, the salary of the Cubs today was $170 million, $160 million for the whole, wow, so it's a huge accretion of wealth over the years. Um, so, so fiat money has not stood in the way of our getting richer and our getting, I suppose, uh, uh, well, not suppose, much more technically um, advanced. You know, it's, it's been a wondrous hundred years under the Fed. How much more wondrous might it have been except for the spoliation, I say, 
of our money through these manipulations. And uh, um, I think I think we can have all things. We can have uh, we can have uh, uh, technology. We can have liberty. We can have free trade, and we can have sound money. To what extent does the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman something that the the president? That our new president, uh, Donald Trump, will have some say over. How much can that impact the functioning of the Federal Reserve and how they do their business? And, and to the extent you you want to move toward a, a world of uh, something, a more robust monetary system that can, can that can withstand bigger shocks. What does the the head of the agency? How how does that impact uh, how well, we get the, there? The, the head of the the chairman of the Federal Reserve has a vote, and also has a, a great moral authority over other voters. However, that person is not a dictator, and it might just be that uh, the incoming chairman uh, of the Federal Reserve System, uh, succeeding Janet Yellen in 2018, let us say that new chairman. Um, is uh, is uh, becomes a pariah in the eyes of the administration of the Fed, of the staff of the Fed, of the other governors, and of the Reserve Bank presidents. These are loyalists to an institution. So I, I don't think that the new chairman is going to work any miracles of reform. And I think also that the new chairman ought to uh, be careful lest he or she, re- she receive a, a kind of a poison chalice. I mean, I think there is... A, a comeuppance due to us, not for necessarily for sins we have committed, but for choices we have made in money and in debt. Um, the stock market is at or near a record high in level. It's at a record high in level. It is quite up there in valuation. Um, real estate values are extended, especially in commercial real estate. Uh, uh, bond prices until very recently were at heights never before seen, let alone or even imagined. So who's to say there's not going to be some reversion to the mean in financial markets, which could be a very noisy and ugly one. Donald Trump in one of his more lucid moments in the campaign trail talked about a big, fat, ugly bubble. Well, to many on Wall Street, is a quite beautiful bubble. It's been a, a great cornucopia to change the metaphor. Uh, but um, the trouble with really, really expensive markets is that they don't get forever more expensive. They revert to a level that is much more in the way of an average. And by way of returning to the average, they become very cheap. So that's, that's the way markets work. They are cyclical. They move up and they move down. If they move up a lot, there'll be a correction. And what the errors the correction will correct are the errors of excessive lending and borrowing, of... Uh, of uh, of reckless extension of credit. They will correct the errors of misallocation of capital that perhaps come from of mispriced interest, misfixed mis, uh, interest rates, interest rates not discovered in the market but administered from on high. They'll fix that error as well. So corrections correct error. And errors come in clumps when prices are administered. So if I were the prospective new Fed chairman or governor, I'd be very careful about owning the problems that preceded my arrival on the premises. <laughs> there are a lot of good people who could do that job, by the way. I'm going to put in a plug for my pal, Judy Shelton, who is a, no stranger to the Cato Institution, and uh, but she would make a great successor to Janet Yellen. 
Jim Grant publishes Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.